The Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is brought to you by Blue Pineapple Travel. Blue Pineapple Travel are experienced travel agents who help you design the perfect trip. They're all well-traveled and knowledgeable, and they will be your advocates from start to finish. The world is a lot different these days, and the agents at Blue Pineapple Travel are ready to help you safely navigate it. From helping you figure out the conscientious destinations to helping you figure out entry protocols for different countries, the agents at Blue Pineapple Travel are there for you. Looking to work abroad for an extended period of time? Looking to attend virtual school from a remote location? These are all things that Blue Pineapple Travel can help you do. Again, their website is bluepineappletravel.com. The Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is also brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance. You can find them at itlcoaching.com. ITL Coaching and Performance exists to build a community of athletes set on reaching goals and serving the community. They have a passion for helping people achieve their goals and dreams. ITL coaches are real people with phones, emails, and the desire to spend time with you during your training. They are vested in their ITL athletes. ITL takes a communal approach to coaching, so there's always someone available to answer questions and to help adjust your training schedule. An ITL coach will be glad to meet with you and to chat about your goals and find the best plan to help you meet those goals. Again, their website is itlcoaching.com. And finally, the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is also brought to you by SlayRx. You can find those good folks at www.slayrx.com. Are you needing a pleasant spark to take your endurance game to the next level? Are you needing an all-natural, high-quality, customized hydration powder with or without sugar to stave off cramping and dehydration? Are you in need of an effective all-in-one fuel to slay your endurance efforts? Look no more. SlayRx. SlayRx has a really good line of products to serve our most pleasant exhaustion podcast listeners. Let's start with Michelle's favorite, Spark Plug, which replaces sports gel and gross post-race strips to the Porta Johns. It's a poppin' electrolyte powder in small, easily carried tubes. There's also an all-in-one endurance fuel. It has all of your electrolytes, clean fuel, and for no extra cost, your essential amino acids with or without caffeine. And it costs about one-third as much as other brands' combo rocket fuels. Finally, they have my favorite, SlayRx Hydrate Powder, which comes with or without sugar and varying strengths of electrolytes based on your individual needs. They can find those individual needs on the free quiz online at SlayRx.com or with in-person testing like Patrick and I did at their headquarters on podcast episode number 114. Hydrate is the fuel that I use during the Blue Ridge Relay this year, and I recommend it for all of you as well. SlayRx products are 100% natural, come in great flavors, are vegan friendly, and the Hydrate Light is keto friendly. They've all been well researched and developed by a UGA food scientist who's also an Ironman athlete. The products are tested by the pros and endorsed by your fellow endurance athletes and hardworking folks in the community. The free sweat quiz and their products can be found at SlayRx.com, on Amazon.com, or at your local run and bike shop if it's available. You can use the code PLEASANT22 for 10% off at their website. Thanks to SlayRx for sponsoring us, y'all. Give them a try. We appreciate our sponsors, and thanks to all of them for helping us bring you the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITO Coaching Performance, Blue Pineapple Travel, and Slayer X. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Marietta, Georgia. I'm a college professor, and I'm a father of twin boys. My name is Michelle Frank. I'm also an endurance athlete. I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. I don't know why George <laughs> said he's in Marietta, Georgia. Um, I am a CPA and a mom to three girls. <laughs> And my name is Eric Hall. I'm an endurance athlete and coach in Raleigh, North Carolina, who's originally from 
Marietta, Georgia. <laughs> I'm the father to three teenagers and the husband to a beautiful wife, Melissa. Very good. And we have with us a native of Marietta, Georgia, uh, on the podcast to talk about her book of the quarter, Let's Get Physical. Danielle Friedman, welcome to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being um, here. Well, not to be outdone, I'm also from Marietta, Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> George changed the intro and I'm not good with change. No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, so uh, Danielle wrote Let's Get Physical, which um, as most people know, was our book of the quarter. And lucky for me, uh, Danielle and I are childhood friends. We grew up in East Cobb. I was trying to figure out if we either danced together or were in preschool together, but we definitely started um, attending school and Sunday school and Hebrew school together and mm -hmm. elementary school. Um, we were in middle school together, high school together. We suffered through homeroom together every day for four years. <laughs> um, Danielle's website describes her as an award-winning multimedia journalist who specializes in telling stories at the intersection of health, sexuality, and culture. Um, and with that, I'm going to do something a bit different here and ask Danielle if she can kind of introduce herself. Um, Danielle, because your biography is such a big part of Let's Get Physical, you know, can you give us your history as an athlete and as a scholar um, and how those things and that experience led you to write this book? Yes. Um, well, it's so great to be here and to be reunited with you, Michelle. <laughs> um, um, so let's see. Um, I am, I'm a journalist. I've primarily covered women's health, gender, and pop culture for the past 15 years. Um, before that, I actually started my career as a nonfiction book editor, which would come in handy <laughs> all these years later. Um, and I'm also, um, I like to say a lifelong runner, actually, Michelle, I feel like you're one of the few people who could maybe, <laughs> who, has, who could fact check me. This I, is true. <laughs> I did run a season of track and cross country uh, my freshman year of high school, and I, I very quickly realized that I was, I was not going to be winning any races, and um, I... It, it took me a little while to, co to kind of come back to running and to, to enjoy it just for the experience itself. Um, but it is really, I'm, you know, I, I shouldn't have to give the caveat, but I, I do. I, I'm a slow runner, a leisurely runner, but I really consider it part of my identity. And, and it's just something that brings my life a lot of joy and, you know, gives me a lot of meaning. Um, so I also always have to give my dad a shout out in this history because he is a really passionate lifelong runner who for him, it's, it's never really been about competition. It's always just been about the joy of it. He considers running really meditative. And I think he passed that down to me. Um, and so um, while I have covered various aspects of, of women's health and health in general, I hadn't really written about fitness specifically until I embarked on this project. But um, so the book began about five years ago um, when, and I, this is, it's sort of, it's a little bit cliche, but I was getting ready for my wedding. And so I, for the first time ever ventured inside a boutique fitness studio, it was a bar studio. Um, and, you know, being the journalist that I am, as <laughs> I, I loved the workout, um, but I also was just sort of fascinated by the culture. And I was curious where bar came from, because at that point it had, it had become, as it still is, a, a multi-billion dollar industry. 
Um, I started doing a little bit of investigating and I stumbled on the story of Lottie Burke, who is the, the dancer who invented bar in the late 1950s in London. Um, she was this incredibly sort of eccentric, colorful, complicated character. Um, and I wrote about her story for New York Magazine's The Cut. And it also, it just, my experience researching that opened my eyes to this much bigger history and this bigger story that had not been told of the, you know, basically the story of how we as a country evolved from a place where women were really discouraged from moving in any kind of strenuous, vigorous way to, you know, the world we live in today where, um, where women's fitness is really ubiquitous. So um, I, I just truly, I couldn't believe that that, that that book didn't exist. And I realized there was kind of like a Lottie Burke-like figure in every women's fitness movement of the past 70 years. And um, it was really like a light bulb where I just felt like I have to tell the story. And it has been the most fun, gratifying project in the years since. Very cool, very cool. Um, you did an amazing job. Um, and and you. you did um, such a good job, not only of, of talking about the biographies and telling these stories of Lottie Burke and, and several others, um, but weaving those into the narrative, using those as an entry point to tell about this 70 year long fitness movement, uh, mm -hmm. which I thought was super cool. Um, and then the other thing you did that I thought was so cool is you talked about how the movement itself sat at this intersection um, between femininity and feminism. Yes. Um, and that, that all of these things, whether it's bar or running or whatever it happens to be, on the one hand, were sold as things that were liberatory, were on the other hand, also ended up getting kind of subsumed as part of, well, it'll make you sexier and it'll make mm -hmm. you skinnier and it'll make you more desirable and all sorts of things like that. Um, and, and what I felt like I kept seeing in the book was that something would, would come along like this liberatory opportunity for women to, to, to take control of their bodies and control of themselves. And then it would get co-opted, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, why does that happen? Why did that happen? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, there, there would be a kind of like social corrective that would sort of take something like you said that really had the potential and in many ways succeeded at being liberating, um, but but added an additional you know set of sort of pressures and expectations that complicated it. Um, well, it's a very um, you know parsing out sort of those uh, that tension and those competing interests was kind of like the central challenge of the book and of telling the story, because I really I wanted to acknowledge you know how far we've come and the pioneers who, who did create the opportunities that women have to, to move today and test their, their strength, but also of course, explore everything else that came along with it. Um, one reason I think why, there, there's, there, there's many reasons, but one reason why we've seen that kind of social pattern is because, so if you go back to the 1950s when my book begins, um, you know, it was this time of really strict gender norms in the post-World War II era, and women who had been working in factories were really encouraged in no uncertain terms to go back to the kitchen. And so for 
those early fitness evangelists, if they were to sell strength for strength's sake to women, it would have, that message sort of, you know, would have been dead on arrival. And so um, even if the pioneers themselves believed in strength for strength's sake, they were sort of savvy in that they they learned to package what they were selling in the language of, of beauty culture and of, you know, becoming more attractive for your, for your partner. And, um, that was a really successful model. You know, I think um, Americans especially are really drawn in by the promise of a makeover story. The American dream, you know, is sort of in a sense of a makeover story. And, and for women especially who, you know, are, are continue to be told that we should constantly be sort of working on ourselves and striving to be um, as attractive as possible. It was just a really, irresistible message. Um, and then what happened was through the decades as, I mean, I like to say as exercise became more accepted, it also became more expected of women. So like the ante continued to be raised. So as, as whereas in the, the 50s and 60s, women were kind of across the board striving to be really thin by the 70s as more fitness and athletic opportunities came about, the beauty ideal shifted to be a more athletic one. And then in the eighties, it was more of a hard body and it just, you know, leading to, to bodies of steel. Um, and so, you know, it, it ultimately got to a place where it was just completely unrealistic for most women. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that, I think that I, our culture has historically been really threatened by female strength, you know, by the idea that women could become stronger than men. And so, you know, we, the culture has the way of, of kind of um, putting a check on, you know, on women's progress. Yeah. And so given that, and I think that's super interesting and also kind of tragic, um, but given that you actually ended the book on this really hopeful note, um, mm -hmm, you talked mm -hmm. in the last chapter about um, body positivity and, and sort of where we are right with that right now. Um, and, and you actually said women's fitness may have caught on because of its promise to reduce us, but its true potential lies in helping everybody become limitless. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's that, that hopeful note, I'm totally on board with it, but it kind of caught me a little bit off guard. Um, mm. And it kind of makes me wonder, what do you think is different about this moment that that is going to keep that social corrective from happening again. Yeah. Um, so even in the course of the time that I was writing the book, um, I really did start to see, and you know, I, in in speaking with others who are studying this, it's it, it's not just me. You know, there really has started to be a social shift. Um, part of the reason has to do with social media, which has rightfully received a lot of criticism for the ways that it can, you know, um, amplify fitness personalities who don't always have their audience's best interests at heart or who can reinforce sort of unrealistic body ideals. Um, but the other side to social media is that um, it has provided, it has allowed kind of the, the masses to, to talk back. And so for a lot of the history that I write about, you know, the, there was sort of this one-way conversation between popular culture, women's magazines, which for so long were just such a major source of authority. Um, 
and even fitness personalities and sort of telling women how they should look and women attempted to follow. Mm. And now over the past like five, 10 years, you know, the, the people who, um, as one activist put it, you know, have been um, the, the biggest in number, just not in power, um, have, have started to protest what, what yeah. I think most of us recognize this sort of, um, again, not a realistic goal for most women or a healthy goal to be striving for. And so we're starting to see, you know, and I always like to pref- I always like to sort of preface it by saying we're at the beginning, I think, of a, of a shift, but um, more body diversity, uh, uh, expanded understanding of what a fit body can look like. Um, when you see like major, major um, athletic retailers like um, from Nike to Athleta to even Lululemon, you know, um, featuring a wider array of models. I think those are all signs of progress. And even if, which is not to, you know, I don't want to, again, over-celebrate the sort of capitalist aspects of it, but it's still reflecting of, of a, a cultural shift. And, um, and so, you know, I, I think that we haven't really seen a moment like this in the past. And, and the other thing I was going to mention too, I heard from a lot of fitness professionals that, you know, not that long ago, maybe 10 years ago, um, there was really no shame in using the promise of things like working toward a bikini body or getting rid of love handles or problem areas to sell their workout or to motivate people, to incentivize people, you know, today they would never use that language. So the language has really shifted to be, I mean, and I'm, this is not, you know, this, this is not completely consistent across the board, but at a lot of major um, fitness brands, the language has shifted from physical transformation to more about, you know, empowerment and strength and even mental health. Very good. Very good. It was interesting what you just said. And I think it was interesting the way you started to introduce yourself was about how, and you said it was cliche, Mm. you were, you were about mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. go to your wedding and you went to one of these yeah. you know, fitness facilities. So it was interesting to hear what you just said, because it's almost like you're a, you were a victim to it as well. And it's persisted. And as I read the book, I kind of went through these waves and the book kind of carries you through them of mm-hmm. here's mm-hmm. this activity. It's good for you. I want, you know, this empowerment, but let's, package it in a way that can be consumed easily by the customer. And that's, that's a marketing Mm -hmm, thing. mm -hmm, I think, mm -hmm. unfortunately, you know, my experience has been as a high school coach and just, and just viewing this and I may be just seeing this so negatively is there are still so many girls and uh, young women and women that that is more than it, that's a third or more than their purpose for running. It's interesting how powerful that still is today. And it's one of the things that your book kept almost like hammering home. Mm. We we kept going back to how do you package this for the audience? How do you pack? And what it makes me think, and this is, I guess, the question, is that just the audience? Is that audience always going to exist? And is it always going to be packaged that way or at least do you have to do that because it's going to be consumed by that audience in order to be successful 
Hmm. Um, well, I, I am an optimist <laughs> and I do think even though, you know, change and progress is incremental, I, I think there have been very real changes in, in that audience and in what that audience is kind of willing to put up with. And um, even if there's, there's a sort of implicit or unspoken aspect to some of these fitness subcultures, you know, even if the instructors aren't talking about weight loss, if it's sort of implied and in, in the, mm -hmm. you know, or suggested by the pictures on the walls or any, all of the secondary materials. Um, I still think, you know, I mean, I think, and not to get like too off on a tangent, but we, we really, we are in a moment where as a culture, I think we're, we're reconsidering the way, um, women have sort of been treated historically. Like, you know, there've been all these pop culture um, explorations of the women of the nineties from like Monica Lewinsky. And then there's like Britney Spears has captured the popular imagination. And, you know, I've heard from, from women much younger than me, you know, that like when they hear the way that, for example, like Britney, people talked about Britney's body or, or any of these women, how they, how they were the, the very just sort of like shocking. Yeah. It's yeah. shocking there, you know, because it's just, and it's shocking that sort of everyone else just kind of stood by or was willing to kind of laugh. And so it's, you know, I, I think for women, especially like the desire to control your body is really powerful, can be really powerful. I mean, you know, I think like so much of the female experiences physically is dealing with things that might feel out of your control. So wanting to, you know, one of the few ways that you can control one part of your physicality is, right. is you know, um, your weight to an extent, you know, to an extent, of course. Um, so it's, you know, I, I wish it was as simple as just like we change, you know, change the messaging around exercise and fitness and, and everything will be changed. But I think it's like a multi tiered sort of problem to solve. I would agree one, mm -hmm. 100%. So, but so going, going back to where George was, he was talking about the, the end of the book and, mm -hmm. um, you mentioned that the most common feature of successful exercise is synchrony, that word mm -hmm. synchrony. And, you know, we're, we are mostly ultra athletes. We are mostly runners. We do other things, but the question I would like to ask is for the, for the long haul, the long run, you know, when my daughter's at mile 75 of a hundred miler, mm -hmm. how does that play into, how does that synchrony play into that long run? Mm. Um, great question. I'm so impressed that she, <laughs> that, that any of you are, are hitting a mile 75. So I should say <laughs> that's well beyond my personal experience. Um, but, um, well, so the thing with synchrony and I, I, I first encountered the, you know, what I wrote about in the book and the idea of synchrony being an important part of successful group fitness in, um, I first encountered it in a book called The Joy of Movement by Kelly McGonigal, which I could not recommend highly enough. That book truly for me was, it, it, I mean, it really was kind of life-changing and it greatly informed my book. Um, she's a psychologist at Stanford and, and, and um, an athlete herself. And um, what she, you know, she wrote about how 
when you look at the fitness trends that have taken off over the past several decades, um, and particularly group fitness, the, the sort of magic ingredient has been synchrony. So, you know, you take something like cycling and then you put everyone together in a room and call it spinning and there's a synchrony there. The same could even be said for yoga classes and certainly for aerobic dancing um, and bar. Um, with running, I've thought a lot about that because running can be both such a solitary activity and, and a communal social one, you know, I think, um, I think, you know, and I, it's not that an exercise, uh, a workout has to have synchrony for it to be beneficial or valuable. You know, that's just sort of this extra, like, like I said, magic ingredient. So, um, for me, you know, when I'm running with a group or, or even like during a race, at the beginning of a road race, that feeling of just everybody moving together as a crowd, I think, you know, that like makes me, um, I get emotional in those moments. That's a really powerful experience. Um, and I, I should mention that, th that it's not just that synchrony, um, the reason why it's a magic ingredient is because research has shown that when we do move in sync with other people, um, you know, our bodies release neurotransmitters that contribute to feelings of hope and sense of purpose in life and social trust. So there's all of these amazing chemical processes that are happening. Um, unfortunately, I don't know how much that would help at, you know, when you're, when you're running solo at mile 75, but there are plenty of other, uh, you know, amazing benefits too. Um, I actually think that being on your it's own. Inter the, the interesting thing about it is the one thing that I think Michelle and George would 100% agree with, I'm going to say 100% again, is that the ultra runner scene, it's very solitary at times, but there is not a more encouraging, yeah. engaging group of people. So maybe even if you're not with one another, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you're suffering together. And even if somebody is on their way back at mile 80 and you're on your way out at mile 60, maybe there is some synchrony between you, even though you're not next to one another, not, you're not going in the same direction. Um, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think a, an idea that went hand in hand or goes hand in hand with synchrony is, is community. And that was something I was interested in exploring in the book, you know, looking at the ways that the rise of fitness has provided women specifically, but, you know, everyone who um, engages in some form of exercise with community or the potential for it to provide community. And I think like you were saying, knowing that you're a part of that larger um, ultra community and that people have your back and that there's going to be people at the end to, to applaud you, you know, I think, um, can be really meaningful. One thing that, you know, obviously is the kind of core foundation of the book are multiple biographies. Um, and you finished the book with, you know, a where are they now section. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it was, it was striking to us how interesting the lives uh, of all these women were. Like you wrote many biographies of many of them, Bonnie Pruden, Lottie Burke, Jane Fonda, Lisa Lyons, et cetera. But I'm curious if you could write a full biography of one of them that you profiled, like who would it be and why? Mm, great question. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, yeah, whenever I think about, you know, I, I have been asked, like, did I have a favorite? If there was one person I would want to hang out with, who would it be? And, and I was fortunate <laughs> to actually interview mostly over Zoom because it was during the pandemic, but interview most of the pioneers I wrote about who are still living. Um, but um, 
you know, the, the, your question, Michelle, is actually sort of an easier one for me to answer um, because it's something I've actually thought about in, a, in like a literal way um, as when I think about my next is that project. The next book? <laughs> um, I, I'm, I don't think it'll be the next book right now, but as, I, as I'm thinking about it, I, I would have to say Bonnie Pruden actually, um, because I included like a fraction of her, I only had the space to include a fraction of her story in the book. And Bonnie, you know, was this, was a, a true pioneer and just an incredible human. I mean, before, you know, I even, um, before sort of the chapter of her life that I wrote about, she had, and I touched on this, but she was a, you know, champion skier and, and broke all sorts of boundaries as a female skier and was a mountaineer and was a Broadway yeah, dancer that. and worked on like a dude ranch as a 14 year old. And, and yeah. And, uh, not to mention her personal life. I mean, I talk a little bit about the her the her former husband, but like, um, like she married into this family where they they were just sort of they lived on this massive estate where they were a way section for um, Jews escaping Nazis, and it was like you know that's just but that's before I even got to the part of her life that I write about, mm-hmm. um, and I I also was really fortunate because with Bonnie knowing that she was going to be the um, profiled in the very first chapter. And just just quickly for listeners who aren't super familiar, I wrote about her in the context of her being, um, well, an early women's fitness evangelist who was on the cover of Sports Illustrated in 1957 and had like almost 50 pictorial columns in the magazine and then had one of the first, um, hosted one of the first fitness TV shows. Um, but, um, but uh, with Bonnie, I have become, um, I've gotten to know quite well the woman who um, was her longtime work associate and best friend and roommate for like 30 years. Um, and she still lives in the Were home. they just roommates? Is that, can I ask that? Like, do you know? Or is it, as far as I know, <laughs> they, roommates? they're okay. roommates and very, very, I mean, very close friends. But you actually went out there, right? And it was it yeah. Arizona? Yeah, it was in Tucson. You sat, you, you sat at her desk. I did. And it yeah. was, I mean, like, I'm, yeah. Was that amazing? I mean, it really was. I, I made that trip on like February 12th, 2020. Whoa. Um, and so I'm so, I'm so glad. And I, I also had visited Lottie Burke's daughter's home in the summer of 2019, which again, I, I, I'm just so grateful that I got those trips in. But, um, but yeah, spending time in bodies at Bonnie's desk in the home she lived in until, um, her death and, and just surrounded by, I mean, she and, and Enid, her roommate, um, kept these, saved everything, every clipping and kept these meticulous Mm -hmm. archives. And it's really unusual actually for that kind of archive to just be in a private home. Um, and I think, I think eventually it, it should, and probably will, Enid would like it to be in a more formal institution. But, um, as I wrote in the book, it's like, you know, if you, you have to know it's there to kind of get to, get to experience it, you know, it's, you have to go looking for it. Um, so there's, yeah. And I just think, I think Bonnie, and there's a lot of reasons why I think she kind of faded from the public memory. Um, you know, I interviewed a number of women who were, who grew up in the 40s, 50s, 60s, who remember her, you know, who are surprised people don't know who she is, but she was really, you know, I think later her career was sort of obscured by Jack LaLanne, who 
was a contemporary, but then went on to have his show for many decades. And her message, honestly, I mean, as she got older, her message was sort of less sexy than it was when she was, sure. you know, writing how to stay slender and fit after 30. Yeah. And I think that's one reason why she, you know, she didn't, she wasn't trying to compete with Jane Fonda. Yeah. Um, so I think that's one reason why she, she faded away from, you know, just the public yeah. stage. We will, awesome. we will look forward to that one. Um, I, I, can I go ahead and can I go ahead and put an order now? Actually, order an advanced copy. So. You got <laughs> this is like a huge compliment, Danielle, because the last three quarters I've picked the book also, and George wasn't. But <laughs> uh, well, you it's, you can share what you really think after. after no, no, it's that. it's it's a running joke that that Michelle had lost all of her uh, her her credibility in picking the mm. book of the quarter, and she has now regained all of it. So. Um, <laughs> Uh, I wanted to ask you about a particular one of those biographies. I want to ask you about the one of Catherine Switzer. Um, yeah. And so everybody who listens to this podcast, I dare say, probably knows who KB Switzer is, knows who Catherine Switzer mm -hmm. is. She was the first official entrant, female entrant, into the Boston Marathon in 1967. But she she didn't enter it as Catherine Switzer. She entered it as KB Switzer. And she went out there with her boyfriend, who was a football player slash hammer thrower, and her coach, and they were running. Um, and around mile four, the press truck notices her and they say, you know, are you out here trying to, to make a statement? She's like, nope, just trying to run. And then Jock Simple, this sort of curmudgeonly and more than just a little bit sexist co-race director at the time, jumps off the truck and tries to physically remove her from the race. And, and her boyfriend uh, kind of shoulder blocks him and, you know, knocks him into the bushes and she ends up running on and ends up finishing the race, right? Um, and, and so she's kind of regarded as this, this big pioneer. Um, mm -hmm. We've talked on this podcast before about how the year before that, there was another woman named Roberta Gibb, Bobby Gibb, um, who ran it unofficially, who banded it, which was a very common practice at the time in the Boston Marathon and really was all the way until only about 20 years ago. Um, and she was kind of celebrated, um, whereas Catherine Switzer um, was you know, nearly literally physically thrown out of the race. Um, and so I have kind of kind of two questions about Catherine Switzer. Um, mm -hmm. One is you told her story more extensively than I've ever read it before. And I didn't know, for example, that her boyfriend, who is really lionized in this story, actually mm -hmm. broke up with her a couple of miles later and literally mm -hmm. ran off and left her alone on the race course. Um, and I also I knew this a little bit, but not to the degree that you talked about it. That, that even though she said, no, no, I'm not trying to make a point. She spent most of the rest of her career advocating for women's marathons and more races for women. And she was one of the primary forces behind getting the Olympic marathon added to the women's program in 1984. Mm -hmm. um, and so the first question I have about her is, have we kind of done to Catherine Switzer the same thing that we've done to like Rosa Parks and Helen Keller? and kind of whitewashed that story and sort of made it more palatable. And we've taken away in the process, some of her humanity and some of her agency. Um, I kind of felt that, but maybe that's just something I'm bringing into it. I mean, what do you think? Hmm. Well, it's so interesting to hear that perspective because I think, um, you know, just from what I've gathered, both based on the response to the story, I, you know, her story in the book and even just in the, the, my experience of researching, I think while her story is, is well known among the running community and, you know, running scholars, um, 
it's still not that widely known among the larger, you know, even just fitness community, the, the, the sort of more casual running community. Um, so I, um, I, I mean, I think it's sort of to be expected that that a story like hers, which is so there's that element of drama there, the photos, of course, of Jock Semple, you know, attacking her, attempting to rip off her bib. Um, I, I think it's sort of become, she's become like a folk hero, you know? And so in that process, it, it makes sense that it would be, her story would be simplified. Um, I have to give major credit to her, her book, her memoir, Marathon Woman, <clears throat> which is fantastic. And I relied on a lot um, in writing that chapter. I, I interviewed Catherine, we've, we've been in touch frequently over the past few years. Um, but, um, but her book sort of provided such a great foundation for me, you know, and for even my, my interview with her and being able to tell her story. So for anyone looking for even more detail and even mm. more nuance in what happened, that's, that's the place to find it. Um, I was also interested in, I mean, the story about her, her boyfriend abandoning her on the course that it was just. The, the human element to, you know, of that was so, um, you know, relatable to me. Yeah. And here's this, you know, it is easy, I think, to look at pioneers as sort of almost two-dimensional. And I, I really, I'm, you know, I really wanted to bring these figures to life and to try to get inside their heads and to allow readers to get inside their heads to appreciate them as multidimensional, complicated, human figures you know um so that detail about him her, him leaving her in tears was just um I, I i kept thinking about that after i finished her book you know so it, yeah. that's partly how it made its way into mine history and, has been very kind to him yeah. <laughs> well re yeah. read her book and you might have a, <laughs> yeah there's a lot more um that I did not, that I did not include. Um, but yeah, she, I mean, and it's, you know, who knows if this was sort of a little bit of like her reflecting on the experience later or if this, but the way that she really describes it and that I tried to capture is that even though initially she didn't um, go into the race with a mission, you know, the experience of being like assaulted on the course and being told she couldn't very much galvanized her, you know, and sort of right was during the, and, and actually Bobby Gibb um, had a similar experience, but at a different, uh, the timing was different. She had that same sort of a revelation when she, she officially applied, she was told no, she got a letter saying, you know, uh, the, the AAU informs us that it's dangerous for a woman to run, you know, more than two miles. <laughs> and she was like, yeah, she was like, what is this? And so at that point, she was like, I'm going to Boston. I'm doing it. I'm going to show them, you know. So for her, it was the same thing. Like both of these women just loved to run and they had um, found their way into it at a time when it was really, really unusual for women to be running, you know, distance. And um, and then it was it was the experience of being told they couldn't that turned them into activists, which I think is you know, a lot of, I think that's the case for a lot of, a lot of us who become, you know, like I can speak for myself, passionate about a cause, um, recognizing that injustice firsthand. So um, yeah, Catherine's story is so interesting. And especially also just, I was interested in looking at like, for a while she, 
you know, she didn't identify herself as a feminist, but she was, but she, partly because of how complicated that label has always been, you know, right. But she, she ultimately did um, embrace it, but. Well, so, really so, and, and you mentioned Bobby Gibb as well. And, and Bobby Gibb, who the year before had run it and was, as you said, trying to make a statement because she had already had that sort of radicalizing moment or, or that awakening mm-hmm, or whatever we want to mm-hmm. call it. Um, and the other question I wanted to ask you about, sort of the Catherine Switzer, Bobby Gibb chapter of the book, and, and you mentioned this real briefly in the book, but I was hoping you could talk about it a little bit more, is why is it that, that Catherine Switzer got the attention and we tell the story of Catherine Switzer, whereas Bobby Gibb, who was actually kind of first, she only got a statue in the last five years or so, and, mm-hmm, and people don't really mm-hmm, know her name mm-hmm. as much. Mm. Why, why is that? Why, why, did, why did we choose Catherine Switzer to be the pioneer rather than Bobby Gibb? I think it has something to do with the fact that Catherine turned, turned it into her career. You know, she, Bobby um, has always been something of a Renaissance woman. And, you know, after the race, she was living in San Diego. She went back to San Diego. She, um, she's a sculptor. She got degrees in science. I could be wrong, but I believe she... Well, I was going to say she got a law degree. She, she, you know, she, she um, was always. She did, yeah. Yeah, very intellectual, and and she also had had experiences of being, you know, discouraged from pursuing higher degrees and a career because of her gender, and so, um, you know, she didn't really, um, at least for a good part of her life, I don't think she turned women's running into a she, she just, you know, it wasn't like a, a public cause for her. Whereas Catherine, almost immediately after she finished Boston, like got to work, you know, um, creating races. I mean, Bobby got to work as well, but in, in other fields. But Catherine was very visible in her, um, you know, in her activism. And then she teamed up, you know, with um, New York Road runners and was instrumental in creating the first all women's road race and, and, and um, bringing women to the New York marathon. And um, she also, you know, she was a journalism major. She was a, eventually was a broadcast, you know, she did some broadcast work. She, communications was her specialty. So I think, um, I think all of that just contributed to her being more in the public eye. I think the photos of Jack Semple, um, you know, really helped bring her to, you know, they, they, they told her story. Um, and, um, yeah, I think, you know, some of it's just, just sort of personality, I think. So I'd like to go back to something you said sort of, uh, in what George was asking you and you said, um, experiencing the injustice firsthand is Mm -hmm. what, you know, catapulted them. And I was, so when I heard injustice, I started thinking, you know, something you go come back to again and again in the book is how African-Americans were left out of all of this. Mm -hmm. And it's very easy to stand at a start of a race or just to go out for a run. You know, we live in the Southeast, but I think this is across the country. And to, to not, it's hard, I should say, to not feel like that injustice still exists. Yeah. So is there a, 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 a main factor why that is? 
um, is there, is it culture? Is it, is it socioeconomics? Is there, was there something that you saw? Cause I know it's a little tangential to your story, but is there something that you saw in pulling this together that you may touch on later or that you can express that causes that? Well, I don't think it's tangential. I mean, I really, yeah, I see it as being a really, you know, an important part, really important part of this history. Um, and one of my goals, you know, and what I felt was a responsibility of mine was to just begin to kind of look at, um, you know, who has had, who has historically, who has fitness been for, who has had access and who has been left behind. And, and part of that I think is because or part of why I was so driven to tell that story was because um, for a variety of reasons, some of which I go into the book, we've just been very quick to kind of judge people's, you know, we often equate people's external appearance with their inner character, with their, you know, with, with moral, their, their value and their worth. Um, my, my friend, the fitness historian, Natalia Petrozellis, you know, likes to say, um, America began to see a fit body as a virtuous body. And I wanted it to be clear that there are so many, you know, structural systemic reasons why fitness is not in fact as, as kind of equal opportunity democratic as, as we might like to think. Um, you know, even just something as, as simple as when you think about like who has who has the time to to you know intentionally go out and exercise, who has the means, who has the safe space to move around it. Um, I know that like you know I I live a very privileged privileged life, and there are days when like for me, you know, the, I, I feel like I'm struggling to find the time and, and, and I'm, you know, I'm in a position where that, that shouldn't even be an issue. So um, if somebody's working two jobs and dealing with a tremendous amount of stress, I think, um, and, are, and are, are the result of um, our, our sort of suffering largely because of structural inequality and structural racism, um, I don't, I think that they will be denied, you know, many of the, the, the benefits of regular movement that, that other people get to enjoy. Um, I, I, you know, I, there is so much more to be written and researched on this topic and I, I hope to continue to explore it. I felt like, you know, I, I hope that I sort of started to peel back, um, to pull back the curtain a little bit in my book. I think with running, especially there's also, I mean, it, it's just as simple as there's just, there's a history, history of, of racism. And I think that, um, you know, unfortunately something that I heard from black running pioneers is that um, they've had to endure um, the racism of people who see a black person running in public and assuming, um, you know, something that there's something criminal or just all sorts of really um, horrible racist assumptions. So, um, and, and I think for black women, there's like, there's, you know, added layers of, of um, dangers there. So I think that, um, yeah, th that I hope that that partly answers your question. Oh, it does, but, yeah. it does. And, you know, you would, I'm going to go back to something else and then ask you a question. You mentioned social media and you, mm -hmm. you said as many evils as it might have 
it allows the masses to talk back. Mm. I'm still processing that because <laughs> I'm, I'm a bit of a pessimist on the, the, the social media side. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of the masses and their, mm-hmm. their talking mm-hmm. back mm-hmm. needs to be silenced. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> because it, it turns into just, I, I don't even want to go down that route. But I feel like that might be part of the remedy. And I'm wondering how you feel. Like, is there a solution on the horizon? You know, you're, you you do your glass half full, rose-colored glasses. There is something better. Do you see a solution? Well, okay. So just to give a, a specific example um, from my book, um, I write about Jessamine Stanley in the last chapter. Um, she's not a runner. She is, um, yoga is her primary practice. Um, but she, you know, she was really fortunate. She, she had an aunt who brought her into, um, who encouraged her to go to yoga with her. And when she would go to in-person yoga classes as a young woman, you know, she was very, very aware of the fact that she was often, other than her aunt, the only person of color in the room. She also, she describes herself as fat. She was the only fat person in the room. And for a really long time, it was hard for her to focus on anything other than that, fearing that people were, you know, judging her and just feeling so uncomfortable. Um, she eventually, and she's a fellow North Carolinian, she lives in Durham, actually. She, um, when she eventually, she couldn't afford in-person classes after, you know, making some life changes. And so she started practicing at home and she started posting photos of herself on Instagram, really just to get tips from the community. I think she sensed that there was at least something of like a supportive community there for for her to reach out to. And the response was really, you know, just sort of stunned her and people were supportive, but they were also saying, wow, like I didn't know, you know, a a fat person could do yoga. Um, And by sort of creating that representation, I should, the other, you know, the the rest of her story is that she gained a tremendous following. She's really become, you know, a superstar in women's fitness. She's been on the covers of magazines. She's had endorsement deals and um, she started a business, multiple businesses actually. Um, But she just by, you know, she carved her path. She put herself out there. And now for other women of color who are interested in yoga or who, who are, who have been told their whole lives that they're, they don't belong, you know, they, they have evidence to the contrary. So I think, um, because social media has allowed <clears throat> people, I mean, yes, it's, it's spawned influencer culture for better or worse, but it's allowed some of those influencers to kind of go around the traditional machinery, um, in the fitness world, it, it, it means that in some cases it has allowed people who, you know, wouldn't have necessarily um, been that visible if they had taken a more traditional route um, to, to rise. Um, because nobody expects me to have my glass half full, this topic brought <laughs> me back to, um, well, uh, brought me back to the, you know, to the article in the Atlantic um, and the author says, When Friedman writes about the popularization of running during the 1970s, largely among white people, while Americans of color risk their safety every time they hit the street in sneakers, it's impossible not to mourn Amon Arbery and how far we haven't come. So I feel like it's important to discuss a remedy, but Danielle, like you said, we're really just kind of getting into uh, making this, you know, bringing more awareness to this and uh, feels like 
just as leaders in the running community, or at least podcast hosts, you know, it's mm. good to um, make sure that we're all kind of doing our part uh, to get more kind of diversity, equity, and inclusion out there, whether it's on the roads or the trails or uh, wherever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I wanted to pivot for a minute. When you told the story of bodybuilder Lisa Lyons, uh, you said that she and others began to push us to the quote, beyond the dichotomy of fat and thin. Um, however, the image of a really muscular woman was basically a step too far. But in the last chapter, there was more, um, you know, more writing about our acceptance of women's bodies as they are. Are we still kind of in a place where the super built woman is considered manly or freakish? Um, I, I know we've come a long way. I know we've got CrossFit and obstacle racing and more of that, but it feels like, like my answer would be, I think that we are, but I guess what is your answer? And um, like, if you agree, like, why is that such an enduring mindset? Yeah, well, yeah, you and I, I mean, you definitely, if you hadn't acknowledged CrossFit and the progress, I obviously would have, because again, I'm looking at it through the lens of history when right. even like, you know, so we, we truly are just for the, the kind of everyday athlete, the woman who, who lifts and, you know, and does CrossFit, we, there, we've come an extremely long way there, but yes, I, I do think that, um, I think that a lot of those, um, stigmas against really, really muscular women still exist. I still think there is a lot of fear, even if it's, if it's not said out loud about bulk, like women still fear becoming bulky. Um, you know, I mean, some of it, and as much as maybe this will change with younger generations where gender is more fluid, but I still think our ideas about like men just needing to be stronger (laughs) than women are so ingrained. And I like to think about this, even in terms of like, um, it's still considered somewhat like, like of a conversation topic. If in a heterosexual couple, like the woman is a lot taller than her male partner, you know, it's like, like there's just, so um, some of that 50s mentality, it just continues. And I mean, I think a part of it's passed down from generations, you know, it's just, it's communicated in our pop culture in ways we don't even realize. Um, so all of that adds up to, yeah, I mean, um, I, you know, with, when we see like really, really muscular women, particularly, you know, bodybuilders who are, which, I mean, there's a, there's a whole lot to be said too about that's like, I touch on it a little but about just women's bodybuilding sure. culture. But um, yeah, I think, I think a lot of people, I mean, I think in general, I think we still have a, um, there's still stigma. I was going to add, you know, it's interesting just to look at, I'm always, I, again, being an optimist, I am looking for signs of progress. And this is something that a few people have brought to my attention. I don't know if anyone has seen the movie Encanto, oh, <laughs> um, but um, um, uh, you know, there's a character, uh, the woman who's the sister, whose superpower is strength. And um, I actually should probably fact check this before, or you should fact check me. So I, I, I haven't done independent <laughs> research, but I've heard at least that there were conversations around, like, you know, Disney was maybe afraid of having such a, um, conventionally unfeminine kind of character thought, you know, um, she wouldn't be popular with, with young audiences. And in fact, she's been, you know, like the merchandise, I really, as I'm saying this, please fact check me, but but let's just, (laughs) (laughs) um, um, I have, you know, basically 
Um, let's just say, okay, let's say taking all of that out, just the fact that in a, in a Disney movie, you know, there is a character, a female character who is one of the heroes who's, who is very physically big, muscular, strong, stronger than the men. I mean, that's sending a really, you know, that's sending a message to young viewers. So, um, I, yeah, I, I, it sort of circles back to where we started. I, I think that there's still, there's still like a lot of cultural sort of um, norms, norms and fear around sure. strong women. Yeah. So you tell a lot of deep, long stories and they're fantastic, but you also tell some short ones that are super fun too. Um, and one of the short ones that you told was about Olivia Newton's John's mm -hmm. uh, uh, song and mm -hmm. video for physical. Um, mm -hmm. and you talked about how originally that song was supposed to go to Tina Turner. Um, but Tina Turner actually thought the song was too overtly, overtly sexual. Mm -hmm. Um, and so she suggested that maybe you should give it to this Australian singer that's <laughs> trying to cast off her goody two shoes, uh, yeah. reputation that she got from Greece, Olivia Newton-John. And so Olivia Newton-John loves it. She likes the poppy sound of it. She records the song. And then when it comes time to film the video, she kind of loses her nerve. Mm -hmm. um, because the song is so, so, um, sexual. She says, well, why don't we, or her video producers or whoever say, well, why don't we pretend like it's not about sex? It's about working out. And, and, um, and so the video is all about her, you know, wearing that quintessential eighties workout gear and mm -hmm. lifting weights with all these out of shape guys and, and all that sort of thing. Um, and the reason why I bring it up is because it, it reflects, another one of the themes in the book of the way that uh, the rise of women's fitness uh, mirrored a rise in women's sexual empowerment. Mm -hmm. um, and I ask that because the name of the book is Let's Get Physical, a line from that song. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Why did you choose that as the name of the book? Hmm. Well, you know, the book is a cultural history and um, that song is so, you know, it's so embedded in um, Oh yeah, Eric started singing it a month or so ago <laughs> when we were talking about this book on the podcast. It was one of the highlights of 2022 so far, for sure. Let's get physical. I should have known physical. he'd start doing it again. Third time he's singing on the podcast. <laughs> I think, you know, I, I think it's really telling that Billboard later later um named it like the top song of the 80s of the whole mm. 80s you know and um partly that speaks to how you know the the fitness culture that took off in the 80s um but i think that um yeah i mean for me i i loved the double entendre um i love a good you know I love a good pop culture reference. Um, I, I'm a big fan of the writer, Rebecca Traster, and I loved her book, All the Single Ladies, you know. Um, we did go through some titles, previous titles before reaching that. And I was, I was actually initially calling it Sweat. And I'm glad we didn't because a book by um, Bill Hayes, a writer named Bill Hayes, titled Sweat came out about two weeks after mine. And his, mm. his is actually, it's a, it's a different history of exercise. Um, from a, just from a different perspective, different time period. Anyway, I was, for a while I was calling it workout, um, which had sort of a double meaning, but we, um, we came out, you know, we eventually found our way to let's get physical. Um, I liked the nostalgic aspect, you know, that it, that it communicated to readers that it, this would be a, 
a fun cultural um, read that that also does talk about, like you said, you know, it, different aspects of physicality for women. Right on. Um, well, on the note of women, um, <laughs> another quote from the book was women are desperate for refuge. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. Yeah, that was Judith Lassiter, one of the founding editors of Yoga Journal, who said that to me. And boy, did it resonate. <laughs> and By the way, just as an aside, I, I spent some time practicing Bikram before my third daughter was born, but I'm not really, I don't practice yoga, but just hearing about Yoga Journal made me want to like get a subscription <laughs> to Yoga Journal. I know, I know. <laughs> I, I'm also not a yogi, but um, I, I respect, <laughs> I really sure, have a lot sure. of respect for its ideals. Um, and she was wonderful. Um, yeah, I mean, I think particularly, and I interviewed her in um, winter of, of 2021, um, a little over a year ago. So, you know, I think there have been a lot of there have been a lot of headlines over the past year or so about um, the ways in which um, some of the burdens of the pandemic in particular are falling disproportionately to women. Um, it, more than headlines, I mean, I think the headlines are reflecting a reality that a lot of you know people are experiencing um, with like for, you know remote schooling and just so much of family life you know, sort of being um, taking place within the walls of the home. I think, you know, women have just are exhausted and which is not to say, you know, I, I everyone's, this is, this is a yeah. really difficult time <laughs> for the world right now. Sure. Um, but I think, um, you know, especially um, single mothers and there's, we're, we're, you know, we're lacking as a society and some of the social support that I think could really benefit um, women like childcare coverage and, and yeah. family leave. And so, um, I mean, that's what comes to mind for me, like on a basic level, I think we're in a moment of just like complete burnout. And so um, I think a lot of women too, as they become mothers, you know, takes a while to, for them to figure out their identity in that next stage of life and, um, yeah, it takes like 40 years to figure out your identity, I feel like. <laughs> yeah. You know, when you get I'm, I'm almost how, done. How, with my how, how old are you, Michelle? Roughly 40? <laughs> yeah, I've, I've got like eight more weeks left to really get it figured out. And, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I there's like, I, I feel like I follow some um, humor accounts on Instagram and stuff that will have like, cartoons about, you know, uh, basically like the only place that like you know new moms can sort of find that refuge is to like go and say they have to go to the bathroom you know yeah. and shut the door right. and so um when you I, that's what I mean that's that's okay. basically what I mean. yeah I feel that <laughs> um okay last thing I want to touch on a little bit um so I also really liked the phrase and I think we all did uh the formalization of exercises of practice um, I think, you know, obviously we host a running podcast. Um, so we very much, you know, we all have, have our own careers and practice, um, but we all sort of feel like for us running um, is really a formal practice in our lives. So is that, you know, what the intention was kind of behind um, that phrase or can you speak a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I wanted to, um, 
you know, it was important. And I think some of this, some of this and some of the coverage around the book, it's interesting to see, like some of it has been maybe kind of um, oversimplified, but I, I wanted to, you know, humans have exercised like since pretty much the beginning of recorded time, you know, since like the ancient Greeks and Romans. And, um, and my book begins in the 1950s because that was a real, real low point for movement in this country because um, after the tumult of the Great Depression and World War II, there was this premium on leisure and comfort. Um, but Americans, of course, participated in sport and women too, and exercise, you know, at least gentle, um, appropriate kind of exercise before the movements that I write about. So um, yeah, I, I mostly just wanted to distinguish between, um, I wanted it to be really clear, like what I was writing about, you know, I wasn't talking about sports. Um, while there's some overlap, of course, with running and other, you know, I was, I wanted to really focus in on, on movement and exercise and fitness as a formal practice. Um, and also just, you know, show how, like, for example, when my book begins, um, people didn't talk about training unless they were yeah. an elite athlete, you know, or, um, you know, you would not find like a 40 year old mom, you know, talking about training for uh, a half marathon for, for many reasons. But um, so that, that concept, you know, again, is pretty, is pretty new. Um, and so, yeah, I, I wanted to just highlight um, just how, how recent this history is and, and to distinguish what I, you know, what I was describing from some of these other tangential parts of movement culture. Awesome. Very good, very good. All right, we have kind of one last question for you, uh, Danielle, but it's multi-part. Um, <laughs> and essentially it's what's next. Um, and mm. so I'm wondering what's next for you as an author. Um, I'm wondering what's next for you as an athlete. Um, and I'm wondering what you think is next, what's going to be the next big thing in, in women's sports and women's fitness. Mm, wow. Okay. Well, um, I would love to keep writing books. I loved this process so much. And I, I especially loved the archival research. My apartment has turned into like a <laughs> vintage fitness museum slash library. So I'm sort of, now that the book launch is, um, it's been a whirlwind for a few months, but I'm at a point now where I'm able to kind of pick my head up a little bit and start start researching some other potential topics. Nothing specific to report yet, but um, okay. Okay. <laughs> but hopefully okay. it will be on women's history and um, involve, you know women's health and and so much of what I have loved writing about with this book. Um, beyond that, I'm also you know I, I am a, a freelance journalist, so I'm excited to get back to just um, writing shorter stories. Um, as an athlete, I um, well I. I just, with my dad, ran the um, New York City half a few weeks ago, which was great. My first in-person race in years. Cool. Um, and I'm training with a friend for the Brooklyn half. Um, the, you know, the New York Roadrunners races are so wonderful. I, I, it's a tie. I love the Atlanta races so much too. And I, I actually am run, running the Peachtree. I, you know, yeah, you come. I mean, I, yeah, I, I try to come home 
I try to run the Peachtree every year, even the past few years, like I did it in Atlanta, but I did it virtually. Um, um, so yeah, you know, it's, I'm ex really excited to be just like, I kind of, I kind of go through phases a little bit where I'm more, more and less, um, I make it a more, more or less of a priority, even though I always want it to be a priority. And I'm, I'm happy that it's, I'm at a place now where it's, it, it truly is. And what's next for women's fitness? Um, you know, I, there's sort of the technology, there's that level of answer where I think like, as we saw with the rise of Peloton and all of the, um, the digital communities that sprung up as people were forced to be remote. Um, I think that will, those, you know, the remote fitness will certainly continue and develop and, um, give some people, people who can, you know, who could afford it access to those, um, to, to, to workouts and movement that they might not have otherwise had. But I mean, I have to, I have to infuse this answer with a little bit of my own hope for what's next, which is mm -hmm, sure. that we will continue on the, the path that I think we've started on in terms of for women moving away from movement and fitness as a tool for weight loss and beauty and moving toward it as, you know, beginning to, to harness it as a tool for emotional and mental health and, and be able to experience all of the good that comes with it without having to also navigate um, the, you know, the bad. Awesome. Very good. I love that. In closing, I would like to ask you, how do we keep in touch with you? I know to look at the race results for Brooklyn Half and the Peachtree to see. We're going to be checking up on you on those. But how can we or how can our listeners follow you? What is what is the main the main way we can follow you? Um, sure. So on Instagram, um, I am Danielle Friedman writes and Instagram is kind of my social media home. I share a lot of archival fitness, um, materials and, you know, all sorts of book updates. Um, I'm also on Twitter at D Friedman writes and my website is <clears throat> Danielle-Friedman.com. Danielle Friedman, author of Let's Get Physical. Thanks for coming on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion podcast. We really appreciate your being here and sharing your insight. Thank you so much. This has been so much fun. Thanks again for listening to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion podcast. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast, on Twitter at pleasantpodcast, or on Instagram, Most Pleasant Exhaustion. We're available on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify, so share us with your friends. Don't forget that we're sponsored by ITL Coaching and Performance, who you can find at itlcoaching.com, on Twitter at itlcoaching, on Facebook at facebook.com slash itlcoachingperformance, and on Instagram, itlcoaching. We're also sponsored by Blue Pineapple Travel, bluepineappletravel.com, facebook.com slash bluepineappletravel, and on Instagram, bluepineappletravel. And finally, don't forget we're sponsored by SlayRx. That's SlayRx.com, Facebook.com slash here for SlayRx. That's the number four, SlayRx. Twitter, at official SlayRx. And Instagram, here for SlayRx, the number four, SlayRx. Discount code PLEASANT22.
On behalf of Michelle Frank, Patrick Ollinger, and Eric Hall, I'm George Darden. Thanks for listening to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast.